Good morning, church. This Sunday, we are having our very first park and worship service out in our parking lot. Seems like we've been having many firsts around here, as 2020 has been a unique year to say the least. With every time you blink, something else happens. It seems like our society is having an avalanche of change. How we relate to one another on social, relational, or national level, all of it is in flux, for better or worse. And as things all around us are evolving, I take great comfort in one thing that can never change, God and his word. On October 18th, 2012, something monumental happened, something that had never been done in the history of the world. A group of 2,276 people gathered in a convention center in London and set a Guinness Book of World Record. This, these 2,276 people set the world record for, dun, 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 most people standing on one foot in one place at one time. Boom. I know, life-changing stuff, right? But when you think of it, it took someone to convince all 2,000-plus people to gather in one place on that Thursday morning in 2012. Someone had to give directions on how to stand and then give the signal when to stand. And now, forever in the Guinness Book of World Records, until someone else changes it or beats it. And the 2,276 people who set this world record are the only people that know this record even existed until today. As we finish 1 Peter this morning, Peter has some directions for us believers on how to stand on what we read in God's Word and how we've and it has been studied by billions of people throughout the centuries. Today, we are going to start in verse 12 of chapter 5. Look there with me. It says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. So Peter offers greetings from Silvanus or Silas, Mark or John Mark, who traveled with Paul, and she who is at Babylon. How mysterious. It's not that complicated. Most scholars believe Babylon, which is no longer the empire that we see in the Old Testament, Peter is referencing Rome, the empire currently given, giving Christians issues, and she being the church. So you have Silas, John Mark, and the whole church in Rome giving their greetings. In the middle of this goodbye, Peter gives a beautiful summation and a final exhortation of the entire book in this sign-off. We have been given the true grace of God. The message of this letter is a true gift from God. It isn't a true burden of God, but a gift from God. The true grace is this. All followers of Christ have a living and eternal hope resting in Jesus. Our hope is set on the back of Jesus and his work, which is completed. It is done. It doesn't matter who you are or how bad it gets for you in this life. 
or how hard or how much you suffer, you have a living hope. No matter how dark it gets, you have light at the end of the tunnel. Your hope isn't dead, but it's very much alive and well in Christ. So we have this unmovable cornerstone, foundation for which we have built our hope upon. Now, Peter gives us one last command. Stand in it. Stand in this true grace of God. Take up residence in it. Pastor Tim Keller puts it this way. If you were merely to achieve your goals and fulfill all your wildest dreams, you would only succeed in becoming alienated from the man or woman you were meant to be. You can only become yourself if you do what you were created to do. To serve and obey God unconditionally. To love and rejoice in Him above all other things. There could not be a more countercultural idea. A, a false grace is anything that distances you further from men and women that you were created to be. And this false grace that gets between uh, you and God. I mean, they, they abound all around us, right? How many things are we seduced into thinking will satisfy us, but in the end comes up empty? It could be financial attainment. It could be the promise of achievement, a career, finding your worth in your family or where you live. We are to pursue our true gift from God actively, our living and eternal hope in Jesus. This is the true grace from God. Stand in it. And in this final section, we, we see Peter telling us how to stand in three ways. This whole epistle is the direction for how we are to stand, but Peter ends with these three distinct ways in which we are to stand. So we are asking this question, how do we stand in God's grace? First, we are to stand in dependence, a posture of dependence. Now, doesn't that sound exactly like what we don't want? I mean, we love our independence. Well, let's go to the text. Look at verse 6. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We stand in God's true grace by humbling ourselves. A life of humility, just like last week in verse 5, where it calls us to clothe ourselves in humility, painting a picture of every morning dressing ourselves in humility. Humility is knowing that we are sinners saved by grace through faith, not by our own doing, but by what? By a gift from God. We are nothing without Christ's work on the cross. And because of the cross, God's proven he will not forget you. And he will lead you through any and every difficult situation. You are in his hands. Just last week, I saw a friend of mine who I hadn't seen for over three months now, this friend would be considered high risk in our current quarantine situation, and he is not a Christian. And in our conversation, somehow we started discussing humility and pride, and he insisted that pride is a good thing. Pride is in something that you have in your accomplishments or your, in your life. It leads to your importance and feeling of self-worth. Now, when you, I asked him what happens when those accomplishments are, are taken away or whatever you have pride in is no longer with you, he didn't have an answer. 
So when our power fails, we don't have an answer because there isn't one. But we are free to be humble in the mighty hand of God because his power will never fail. This is the exact trap the Pharisees fell into, taking pride in their, in their accomplishments, thinking that it would give them an advantage before God and others. My friend thinks pride in your life gives you an advantage before God and others, yet the Bible makes it clear, God hates pride. That all that you do are as worth, like worthless as filthy rags. Like James says in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Why does God hate pride? Because anything we are prideful about, who we are, where we live, how we live, our lifestyle, what degree we have or what fancy school we attended, your family, anything will take away your pride. And the only thing we're commanded to be prideful about, Jesus. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Galatians 6, verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We are to only boast in what we have in Christ. Anything else looks to elevate me and my position, my actions, my smarts, my reputation. Kristen D. Johnson, a theologian at Western Seminary, said it this way, We can be humble because as members of God's family, we know we are entirely dependent on the grace and love of God extended to us in Christ, which we use to love others. Yet, we don't need to elevate ourselves because when you hold on to your living hope in Christ, God will elevate you. Like it said back in verse 6, in the proper time, God will exalt you. Credit in this life is nothing compared to credit in eternity. This posture of dependence is depending on God to exalt us, for God to give us grace upon grace. This includes our worries now that the text, I know it says anxiety, but anxiety is such a catch-all word. And if you deal with chronic anxiety and stress, please first go back and listen to Pastor Derek's sermon from this past July. It is terrific. Yet this sermon seems to be talking more about our worries, fears, and sufferings. Peter is saying that when we don't hand over our worries, this is a way in which we pridefully take God's burden and put it upon our own shoulders. We want to fix things instead of allowing God to provide and lead. We need to hand our worries, struggles, and fears over to God to be dependent on Him in our situations. Like an infant, an infant knows they are dependent. Just like a baby is crying for a parent in the middle of the night, that is us crying out to God, casting our worries upon Him. But what Peter is telling us to do is completely unnatural to us. We are to humble like Christ was humbled, to exalt the Father like Christ exalted the Father. A posture of dependence frees us from the temptation to make our name great, looking for recognition, looking for praise, and directs all praise to God, freeing us to humbly submit to his leading, to clothe ourselves in humility, we need to constantly remember where we were before the cross. We were nothing, and Christ gives us everything. So we have first have a posture of dependence, 
Second, we stand in the grace of God in anticipation. Anticipating what God has told us will come. This is much like a high schooler getting through the school year and all the homework and tests, looking forward to the freedom of summer. Or now, if you're a homeschool parent, eagerly waiting for school to start and resume in the fall. This is good news and bad news. So let's start with the bad news first. Let's read verse 8. It says, Be sober-minded, watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. So this is bad news. We will be under attack. It's not in question, not if, but when. The devil is looking for an opportunity, and we are called to anticipate where he's on the prowl, looking to steal, kill, and destroy. Now, all of us go through hardship in this life, and we are told to expect it on his account, but this hardship isn't even the main weapon of Satan. It's deceit. The devil will convince you that a good God would not, would not want to have you have any hardship in your life. And so our God doesn't care for you or that he's not real or that trials, you are alone. No one has or is experiencing the same thing as you. And so no one would understand or care. Peter speaks directly to this. Stay firm in your faith because your brothers and sisters in Christ are experiencing the same suffering around the globe as well. You are not alone. So we are to anticipate what we're up against But even more than what we're up against, look to what we're going to be looking to, what we have coming our way. So now to the good news. Read verse 10 and 11 with me. It says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. All gifts come from God. If it's not from God, it's not a gift. The God of all grace or the God of gifts will lift you up with Christ. And he is looking to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Or he will bring you to wholeness, completeness. He will improve and solidify you as part of the family of God. Now, the devil has limited dominion. Yet Christ has all power in heaven and earth for all eternity, forever and ever. And all of us should have just said, amen. The power of Christ is unmatched and he will use it to our greatest good. Even when we are in the darkest trying moment of our lives, we should look forward to the prize we have in Jesus with great anticipation. A posture of anticipation is looking for attacks, but is far more concerned with what is coming with Christ. We are to have, so we are to have the posture of dependence and the posture of anticipation. And lastly, we stand in God's grace together. Together, with one another, carrying each other's burdens together. In verse 9, Peter has told us to remember that we are not alone in our hardship, but we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are also suffering as well in the same way. Peter is intentional to have greetings from Silas, John Mark, and the church in Rome. We stand in God's grace 
together, and he has given us to each other to help one another in our walk. We are to encourage, mourn, and celebrate with one another. As we saw in verse 14, we are also supposed to greet one another with the kiss of love, which they never embraced in my youth group, at least the cute girls never did. This idea of together is ironic considering many of us haven't seen each other for three months or so, and we have been quarantined. So if anything, this time has reminded us how much it is a gift to gather together, especially on Sundays, to worship together, to serve with each other, and to serve one another. Today is an amazing first step towards meeting in person as we have started meeting on our campus in our parking lot. And when we are able to gather again in our building for worship, what a day of celebration that will be. If anything, we have seen many of you go out in this time out of your way to love one another. You have offered to run errands, give financially, and toilet paper so that others wouldn't go without. A group of 60 plus of you have volunteered to continue to call the, all the members of South Shores and check in on them to make sure that they are shown care and love and to pray with them during this very unusual time. I had a family decide to give a stack of Trader Joe gift cards. I have had more fun mailing those out to people who need that encouragement. I've had many tear-filled phone calls expressing gratitude because of these letters. Small groups and Bible studies have continued to meet online and through email. And if you are new around here, I want to welcome you and invite you to join us in standing in God's grace together. We are better together, kind of like our different worship teams. We don't have a contemporary soloist, but a team. Bob has been a one-man choir for many weeks, but he can't wait to get the choir back together. Why? Because we're better together. And as we look into the Bible, this includes people of all nations, races, and ethnicities. We all have something different and valuable to bring to the table. God created us with beautiful differences that, we, that should be celebrated. And when we get to heaven, it's going to be a mixed bag of all nations celebrating God standing side by side, worshiping our Creator together. The challenge is, people are hard. They come with their preferences and complaints. I have to bear others' burdens, many I'd never choose to hang out with. And this whole together thing would be a lot easier if it was just me, or if people had their head on straight and were more like me, right? This is exactly the opposite of cancel culture. We're not allowed to block, ignore, or cut ties with people just because they said or did something we didn't like. I'm sure glad that Christ didn't cancel me. And when things get weird or uncomfortable, it's time to roll up our sleeves and get to work for peace. And just like our worship teams who put in the work every week before we meet together for worship to get on the same page, we need to do the work to be on the same page, unified in one mind. It's no coincidence as Peter closes his letter, the very last thing he says as he signs off is peace to all of you who are in Christ. I mean, he started this letter wishing believers grace and peace be multiplied to you. And now we have the God of true grace and more peace. What amazing thing it is that Peter is writing to people 
who are suffering. Yet, peace is the natural earthly outcome of our faith, individually and corporately. The more we stand in dependence of God and anticipate what he's going to do, and together, the more peace we will have. Pastor Ron told me this story about a pastor named Alexis, a pastor in Russia that he had met in the 80s who spent over 28 years in prison. While in prison, all they asked him to do was publicly renounce his faith. When beatings and starvations didn't work, when they had torn off his fingernails, they would make him stand naked out in the open courtyard in the dead of winter. They would hose him down and the ice would start to form on his body. All he had to do during all of that was to renounce his faith and they would allow him to come in and they'd set him free. Pastor Ron asked him, how did you survive? And the man looked at him and looked away into space. And Ron knew that he had gone into another place. And finally he answered and said, I had this peace. Through Christ, that is the kind of peace we are given. Powerful. And as Christians, with this peace of Christ, we are uniquely equipped to be peacemakers. I mean, we need to be peacemakers more than ever today, don't we? I mean, we are called to be peacemakers. In Matthew chapter 5, we are called to be peacemakers and strive for peace. And we will be called sons and daughters of God. Being a peacemaker is an incredibly humble position. It's hard work. But we are to be humbled by who's in control and how we anticipate the end of the story because we know the end of the story. We don't need to add to the cacophony around us today, but we are to be eager to help bring justice and a peaceful solution. It takes confidence in knowing, again, how the story will end. For us, the battle is won because things are settled. We can be Look forward with more confidence and strive for peace. I mean, look at our best example, Jesus. He paid the ultimate cost to give us hope and peace. Christians should be marked by peace. And so as we stand in the true grace of God, we stand dependently and with anticipation together. Peace be with you.